Second reading this morning picks up where the first left off, Numbers chapter 22. I will. Oh, that's not true. I'm actually skipping a section. We're going to come back to that next week. I'm going to read uh, verses 22 through 29. Hear the word of God. All of the Israelites traveled from Kadesh to Mount Hor. Mount Hor was near the border of Edom. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, It is time for Aaron to die and to go to be with his ancestors. Aaron will not enter the land that I promised to the Israelites. Moses, I say this to you because both you and Aaron did not fully obey the command I gave to you at the waters of Meribah. Now... Bring Aaron and his son Eliezer up to Mount Hor. Take Aaron's special clothes from him and put these clothes on his son Eliezer. Aaron will die there on the mountain and he will go to be with his ancestors. Moses obeyed the Lord's command. Moses, Aaron, and Eliezer went up on Mount Hor. All the Israelites watched them go. Moses removed Aaron's special clothes and put them on Aaron's son Eliezer. Then Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Moses and Eliezer came back down the mountain. All the Israelites learned that Aaron was dead. So everyone in Israel mourned for 30 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, you caused uh, the words of Scripture to be uh, inspired and to be written down and to be preserved through these long centuries. Father God, you were alive and were active in the lives of these pilgrim people. Father God, you are alive and active in our lives today. We pray that you walk with us as we are on our journey to our promised land. And we pray that we might learn from the saints who have gone before us of what that path looks like. We pray that we might learn from their mistakes and that we might trust you in your faithfulness and in your all-sufficiency. And now, Lord, as... I stand to proclaim the word of God. I pray that you would be present with me. And I pray that you would open our ears to hear what it is that we need to hear this morning. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I've called this uh, sermon, Two Funerals and a Strikeout. Aaron's brother, I mean uh, Moses' brother and Moses' sister both die in this chapter. And Moses himself strikes the rock in a way that causes him to be disqualified from the great goal of his life, which was to get to the promised land. Two funerals and a strikeout. The Bible tells us that Moses was slow of speech and of tongue. Some people think that means that he had a stammer or a stutter, but I think it meant that Moses was often tongue-tied, that he often had a hard time coming up with the right words to say in a moment of pressure. 
I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Somebody catches you off guard, off balance, and you just stand there like an idiot with your mouth open, and you don't know what to say. And then you're angry not only with the person who caught you off guard, but you're also angry with yourself because you look like a fool. Now these days, I am a very sophisticated and debonair man of the world, and I always know what to say. But it wasn't always this way. Let me tell you a true story with some of the names changed to protect the innocent. After college, I lived in West Philadelphia with Sam Wood. That really is his name. We were two bachelors living in a terrible apartment in West Philadelphia. We knew two women from the neighborhood, both students at the University of Pennsylvania. One was ugly and one was beautiful. Now, I know that sounds mean, but I'm just telling you the truth. I'll call them Darcy and Celia. They were good friends, but they were as different from one another as night and day. Darcy only wore black, and she smoked unfiltered cigarettes, and she wrote terrible poetry. Every act in her life was a political statement, and taking a shower was a concession to the oppressive capitalist patriarchy. And so her greasy hair was plastered flat to her head, and she smelled, and not just from cigarettes. But Celia, she was something different altogether. She wore colorful flower prints and pastel cardigans, and she had this wild, uncontrollable, strawberry blonde curls going every which way. And while Darcy talked endlessly about death and French post-structuralism, Celia studied Thoreau and American Transcendentalism. She was all about light and nature and beauty, and I was quite taken with her. One evening, I screwed up my courage and decided I was going to go knock on her door. I didn't know exactly where she lived, but I decided to stop by Darcy's house, which I did know where that was, and ask her, and then go over to Celia's house. And along the way, I picked up a bouquet of daisies at the Acme. I went to Darcy's building. I rang Darcy's doorbell. And when Darcy's door opened, I expected to see the ugly Darcy. But there, to my surprise, was the beautiful Celia. And all my stupid brain could think to say was, Darcy. Now Celia was very gracious, and she said, Oh, Darcy went home for the weekend. I'm watching her cat. Give me the flowers, I'll put them in some water, and I'll tell her that you stopped by. That's it. That's the end of my romance with Celia. This is what happens when you are slow of speech and slow of tongue. It is very frustrating. Our story this morning comes from near the end of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We can think of the book of Numbers as part two of the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we saw the suffering of the Israelites in Egypt. We learned about the birth of Moses. We saw... Uh, that Moses, when he was 80 years old, then leads the Israelites out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They reach Mount Sinai. God's law is given to them. And that's where Exodus ends. The book of Numbers 
then picks up the story. They're still camped at Mount Sinai. They're going to be there for a total of 11 months and 5 days. The first 10 chapters of the book of, of, book of Numbers all take place under the shadow of Mount Sinai. Remember that Israel was not a nation until they had reached Mount Sinai. They had no legal system, they had no judges, they had no priests, they had no tabernacle or system of worship. All of that is created for them there in the desert at Mount Sinai during those first ten chapters of the book of Numbers. We see the infant state of, the, of Israel begin to settle in to its new reality of their nationhood. The next ten chapters which we're just coming to an end of now, chapters 11 through chapter 20, we see a lot of struggles, and we see a lot of conflicts, and we see a lot of complaining. In chapter 11, the people start complaining against Moses. They're sick of eating this manna. They want some meat. In chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, the sister and the brother of Moses, start complaining about Moses. They don't like the fact that he has an African wife. They're jealous of Moses' leadership position. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they ask? In chapter 13, the spies are sent into Canaan. And that's where a really big fight starts. If the Israelites had not been cowards. If they had trusted God, they would have followed Caleb and Joshua and possessed the land right then, not so terribly long after they had left Egypt. But it doesn't work out that way. In chapter 14, God gives the Israelite cowards what they want. They don't want to go into the new land. And so he lets them sit right where they are. And they're condemned to never see the promised land. They will live out their whole lives in the desert. And then God raises up a new generation of brave people who are willing to trust God and willing to follow Caleb and Joshua into the land. Now, sandwiched between these historical episodes are discussions about the law. Keep in mind, the law is what defines the nationhood of Israel. It is the law which makes the Israelites a distinct and separate people. It is the law that makes the Israelites the children of God. The book of Numbers goes back and forth between a commentary on the law and reports of historical events. Last week, for example, we read about the ashes of the red cow and how they can be used to purify a person who had become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body. That's a legal discussion. And now this week, we have the story of the waters of Meribah, and that's a historical report. The story that we read this morning may seem similar to another story that you know from Exodus chapter 17. Moses and the Israelites are camped in the wilderness, they're at a place that's called Rephidim. There is no water there. In verses 5 and 6, God says to Moses, Go before the people and take with you some of the elders. Also take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you will strike the rock and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. Now that seems almost identical 
to the situation that we see in Numbers chapter 20 almost 40 years later. But this time, the instructions are different. This time, God says, speak to the rock and the water will come out. At Rephidim, God tells Moses to strike the rock. At Meribah, God tells Moses to speak to the rock. And so when Moses strikes the rock, rather than speaking to the rock at Meribah, he fails to obey God's direct commandment. And as a result, God bans Moses from entering the promised land. Maybe that seems like a pretty harsh punishment for one infraction. Forty years of leading the Israelites and then the goal of entering the promised land is taken away from him at the very last moment. Is God being a little too nitpicky here? Well, let's pull the story apart and see what's going on. God's instruction to Moses appears in Numbers 20, verse 8. We read, Get the special walking stick, take your brother Aaron and the crowd of people, and go to the rock. Speak to the rock in front of the people. Then water will flow from the rock, and you can give that water to the people and their animals. This is God's solution to the immediate crisis. There is no water. The people and the animals need to drink. God offers a solution. Speak to the rock. But notice that around this immediate crisis, around this concrete and real problem of the shortage of water, there are a whole host of other issues that are raised. Verses 3 through 5, the people say to Moses, Maybe we should have died in front of the Lord like our brothers did. Why did you bring us into this desert? What, do, do you want us and our animals to die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Why did you lead us to this bad place? There is no grain, there are no figs or grapes or pomegranates. There is no water to drink. One problem, the real problem that they're facing at the moment, that one problem multiplies in their minds into a million problems. And in no time, the people are ready to revolt. Some of you might recognize this because this is how married people fight. Picture this. I'm not saying who this is. But there's a mix-up about your child's dance schedule. You thought practice was at 2 o'clock, but your wife doesn't come home with the kid until 3 o'clock because she's sure that you told her that the practice was at 4 o'clock. And while you're waiting for your wife and stewing about her being late, you realize, you know, she is always doing this kind of thing. And you're off and running. Because you also realize that your wife's cooking hasn't been so great lately. 
and she is spending an awful lot of money on the credit card, and it wouldn't hurt her to spend a little more time at home and less time hanging out with her friends, and pretty soon you're remembering everything that your wife does that makes you crazy and everything that she's ever done wrong since your very first date. And when she finally gets home, you give her a piece of your mind, and you don't shut your mouth until you've managed to insult your mother-in-law and blamed all of the planet's problems on her terrible daughter. I don't know how it is at your house, but that's how things go at my house. Maybe you guys are more sanctified than I am. There can be a genuine confusion about a child's dance schedule, but before I'm done talking about it, I am pretty sure that my entire life has been ruined and that my wife's ancestors are all witches and horse thieves and that the only way for me to survive is to get a divorce and a restraining order and an exorcist. This is just how my mind works. Well, my fallen human mind. Since the fall, we humans have been wired for bad news. Our brains pat us on the back when we see that something is wrong. That's why we love stories about house fires and car crashes on Action News. That's why every single headline in the Drudge Report is about the end of civilization as we know it. Because your brain tells you that you are being perceptive by seeing all of the problems out there. That you are being smart by understanding the grand unified theory that links every one of those problems into one diabolical conspiracy. There are, of course, problems in life. Sometimes household schedules get confused. Sometimes there's no water. And if we follow the logic of our fallen biology, those problems grow into disasters. But there is good news. The ordinary troubles of life don't have to become world-ending nuclear disasters. And you don't have to have a perfect spouse to have a really good life. There are two things that we need to short-circuit the chain reaction that can quickly lead from ordinary troubles to nuclear disaster. Number one, we need grace. And number two, we need faith. Let me talk first about grace. Grace, you all know, is the opposite of justice. We all know what justice is. Justice is giving or getting exactly what you deserve. Justice is an eye for an eye. Justice is if you do the crime, you do the time. There's a kind of clean logic and precision to justice. And there is a place for justice in the world. For unsaved people, by the way, there will be justice at the end of time when they meet God. Every thought and every action will be tallied up and each unsaved person will get exactly what they deserve. But grace is just the opposite. Grace is giving and receiving what we don't deserve. Grace is giving someone something that we don't owe them. 
Grace is receiving from someone something that we haven't paid for. Sometimes that's just a small courtesy. Sometimes it's cutting someone a break. Grace involves considering others as better or more important than ourselves. It involves turning the other cheek. It involves lending without expecting to be repaid. It involves praying for and feeding our enemies. And in ordinary life, it is this grace which is the grease that lubricates human relationships. It means that we do not calculate who did the dishes last. It means we hold the door for the person who looks like they're in a hurry. It means we let pass without rebuke minor lapses of courtesy. It means we do not strike back. It means we give up the right to vengeance. With grace, we quiet and we dampen ordinary conflicts so that small conflicts don't escalate into world war. Being gracious, of course, is different from being a doormat. We Christians are not called to be doormats. Doormats are weak, but our ability to be gracious actually comes out of our strength. Grace is a sign of our power. It is those who are more noble who are able to be gracious to those who are less noble. When we are graceless and when we are snappish, it is often a sign that our own strength is tapped out. If I'm having conflict with my wife and my children and my colleagues and the people that I serve, that might be a sign that I need a vacation, that I need a break, that I'm all tapped out, that I've got nothing left to give. That's a possibility. People who are unable to show grace, and maybe you have someone like this in your life. People who are unable to show grace often have never experienced grace in their own lives. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. People who are unable to show grace often have never experienced grace grace in their own lives. No one's ever been kind to them. No one has ever cut them a break. And so it's really hard for them to be kind and forgiving to others, perhaps to you. Of course, there is the kind of grand grace, the big grace, the massive world-altering grace that is the grace that God shows to saved sinners, people who have never experienced the grace of the gospel find it difficult to show grace to others and so they fall back on the justice of the law. So the first thing that we need if we want to short circuit the chain reaction that can quickly lead from ordinary trouble to nuclear disaster is grace and the second thing that we need is faith. And not just any old faith. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God. We have faith in our all-powerful, loving Father. If I know and if I believe that my life is really in God's hands, if I know and believe that all the things in my life are working together for my good because I love God and because I've been called according to His purposes, then I don't have to lose my mind when the ordinary troubles of this life do come up. Oh, and they, of course, will come up. But when those troubles arise, I can trust God 
And I know he's going to make something good out of this situation too, the way he has in the past. Because I trust God and because I rely upon God, I don't have to trust and rely upon myself and my power to fix all of the things in this circumstance. And that's a huge relief. So let's go back to Moses. Moses and the children of Israel are on the move. They've ended up in a place that doesn't have enough water. And the people start to grumble and complain. And they bring up every other problem that they've ever had in their life. And they blame Moses for all of those things. And then in verse 10, Moses says the one thing that marriage counselors tell you that you are never supposed to say to your spouse. And by the way, the rules for healthy communication in your marriage will apply to healthy communications in the rest of your life. If you're having trouble communicating with your spouse, you're probably also having trouble communicating with your co-workers. Moses does the one thing that marriage counselors tell you that you're not supposed to do. Moses says, you always... Verse 10. You people are always complaining. Now listen to me. When we reach the end of our ropes... When we are totally frustrated and exasperated, when we come to the point of hating the very people that we really should be loving, we say things like, you always are late. You never pick up your socks. You always take her side. You never say thanks. You always are on your phone. You never ask me how I'm feeling. These kinds of totalizing statements reflect how we are feeling when we make them, but they're actually rarely true. Were the children of Israel really always complaining? Of course there were some times that they complained, but there probably also were plenty of times when they were content, when they were happy with Moses as their leader. Because Moses is the leader of the nation, the complaints to him feel like a personal attack. The complaints about the water shortage question his competency as a leader. They challenge his very value as a human being, as a man, because his identity is tied up with him being this great prophet and this great leader of the people. And so Moses' reaction is personal and it's angry. Now listen to me. And he strikes the rock with his staff, which by the way is his symbol of authority. And the water does flow. And maybe we think, well, that worked out. All's well that ends well. Surely the People were cheering when the water came rushing out, but as it turns out, God is not pleased. God's instruction was to speak to the rock, not to hit it, to speak 
to the mute physical problem that needed to be dealt with but instead Moses speaks to the people to the complainers to the people who challenged his authority and he speaks in anger and he strikes the rock sometimes in our leadership roles in our families and in our jobs we need to keep our eyes on the mute physical problem that needs to be fixed maybe that's a short circuit in the electrical panel maybe that's a budget that needs to be balanced maybe that's a flat tire that needs to be fixed there will always be problems in this life and sometimes in our leadership roles we need to keep our eye on the problem and not get sidetracked or flustered by the complainers who are standing around taking pot shots at us the coach on the field cannot worry about the people in the stands and what they're saying. The umpire behind the plate cannot worry about the people in the stands and what they're saying. We are better able to keep our eye focused on the problem that is in front of us when we have a measure of grace for these people who surround us with these people who are frustrated and angry by the circumstances. We are better able to keep our eyes focused on the problem that is in front of us when we have a measure of faith in God to carry us through this one too. So let me close this morning by reminding you of the gospel. God lays out for us in his law how it is that we are supposed to live. You don't have to be a Torah scholar to know God's law. Most of us can know it by the light of nature. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Don't lie. But every one of us in this room comes up short. Every one of us has broken the law. And not just accidentally. We have known the law. We have seen it clear as day. But somehow our twisted, fallen nature helps us lie to ourselves and we convince ourselves that we can do this and we go ahead and we do the thing that we know that we shouldn't do. All of us. Every one of us in this room. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible also tells us, and here's the problem, that the wages of sin is death. And death is this separation from God and from all that God produces... Death is the separation from God and it is our sin which violates the character of God that separates us from Him. Our sin is what removes God from our presence. It's why He can't be around us. And so the Bible alerts us to this problem. In Psalm 14 we read, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men, that's us, To see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek God, but they have all turned aside, they have together all become corrupt, there is none who does good, no, not one. And so every single human being finds himself in exactly the same position. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. For us to deal with our sin problem, for us to get free of the penalty of death that hangs over us, 
God himself has to intervene and save us. We can't do it ourselves. And so God sends his son into the world to seek and to save those who are lost. That's us. God tells us that there is, Jesus tells us that there is life in him. And that if we believe in Jesus, he will give us this life, our sins will be forgiven, and we will enter into eternal life. And you understand that the entry point of eternal life is is on this side. We enter into that life even now. There is a righteousness apart from the law of God. Here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. Please listen very carefully. But now, apart from the law of righteousness, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are freely justified by God's grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That's the gospel and that is our only hope. The question that we always have to be asking ourselves is have we received forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we're fine. We're good with God. And we can be at peace with one another. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you this day. And we thank you for your faithfulness to the people of Israel. We thank you that you went with them and you stayed by their side even when they were difficult and faithless and complaining. We thank you for our brother Moses. We thank you for the call that you placed on his life. We thank you for the powerful ways that you worked through him to bring the law to us and to lead and to guide those people through so many difficult years. Father God, we pray that in our lives that we might have greater grace with one another and that we might have greater trust in you. Lord Jesus, you taught your disciples that it is by forgiving others that our own sins are forgiven and we pray that you would give us the ability to forgive one another so that we might be forgiven. Father God, we pray for those of our numbers who are not able to be here with us this morning, who were separated from us uh, by health or by distance. We pray that you would be present with them, each in their own places. We pray that as we go out from this place this morning, that we would go in the confidence knowing that we are children of God, that you have claimed us, that you have given us a righteousness that is not of the law, that is not the result of our good performance, but that is a free gift that we've received through faith in Jesus Christ. Give us the eyes to see that, hearts to believe that, wills to act on that. Lord God, I pray that you would bind us closer to one another 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, even as you bind us to yourself. Lord, we recognize that it is our sin that separates us from you, but it's also our sin that separates us from each other. And we ask that you would forgive us of our sins. We pray that we would be at peace with one another in the family of God. Lord, we do pray for the church around the world this day. We pray for our brothers and sisters who face uh, trouble and persecution. We pray that you would give them strength and perseverance through those trials. We pray that you would protect their lives, that you would guard their hearts. Lord, for those of our families or those who are in uh, our circle of acquaintances who do not yet confess you as Lord and Savior, we, we, pray, we, we pray that you would be patient with them. We pray that you would continue to draw them to yourself. Lord, we ask for your mercy. We pray that you would uh, go out and find those lost sinners and bring them home to yourself. Father God, we thank you uh, for the sweetness of gathering here in this place to worship you with people that we love and people that uh, we know well. And we pray that uh, we would be a congregation uh, with doors that are open and hearts that are open to the people in our community. Lord, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.